Coming up on this episode of The Doctor's Pharmacy. There's never been a point in human history where we have been further separated from the source of our food, from the source of, of life. And I think that is with intention and that's with design. Hey everyone, it's Dr. Mark. As a functional medicine doctor, looking at hormones, organic acids, nutrient levels, inflammatory factors, gut bacteria, and so many other internal variables, it helps me find the most effective path to health and healing for my patients. But such extensive testing can be very complicated and time-consuming for both the practitioner, somebody like me, and our patients. But lab ordering became very quick and painless since I started using Rupa Health. I can order, track, and get results from over 35 different lab companies within a few clicks in one lab portal. And this means one invoice for all labs paid online upfront. Plus, patients get practitioner pricing and receive full patient support through easier personalized collection instructions, automated follow-up, super bills, and answers to testing questions, and so much more. And best of all, it's free for practitioners. So sign up free today. You can find out more information by going to rupahealth.com. That's R-U-P-A health.com. Magnesium has been a constant in my supplement routine for years, and that's because magnesium is involved in hundreds and hundreds of enzyme reactions in the body, facilitating all sorts of chemical reactions. You need it for better sleep, for cardiovascular health, joint bone health, healthy blood sugar, and lots more. And the problem is most of us don't get enough magnesium. I love to take magnesium breakthrough before bed. It's been critical for my sleep, my energy levels, and my mood. Pretty much everything. <laughs> if you've never tried Magnesium Breakthrough, it's actually the perfect time. This month, you can get a free bottle of this full-spectrum magnesium supplement that contains all seven forms of magnesium your body craves in exactly the right balance. Right now, Bioptimizers, the makers of Magnesium Breakthrough, is offering a 14-day sleep challenge. For my listeners, they're offering a free 14-day supply. All you have to do is pay a nominal shipping fee. The challenge is simple. Try Magnesium Breakthrough for 14 days and see all the positive changes I just mentioned. If your sleep and energy are not absolutely improved, by the end of the 14 days, you've lost nothing. But when you think about the power of great sleep, you have a lot to gain. To get your free bottle, just go to magbreakthrough.com forward slash hymen free and enter the coupon code hymen10. That's it. To get your free 14th day supply right now and start the challenge, go to magbreakthrough.com forward slash hymen free and use the coupon code hymen10. Don't miss this opportunity. It's a limited time offer for this month only. And now let's get back to this week's episode of The Doctor's Pharmacy. Welcome to The Doctor's Pharmacy. I'm Dr. Mark Hyman. That's pharmacy, let have a place for conversations that matter. And today's conversation matters because it's about our food, our food system, and how we actually need to understand the role of animals in our food system to create a better ecosystem in agriculture and also better health for ourselves. Now, this may be controversial for some of you, but we're going to get into the details and go through it with two extraordinary men who I've met recently in Austin, Texas. I was there visiting their ranch, Rome Ranch, which we'll talk about in detail. It was one of the most moving experiences of my life. And I learned so much about what it's like to actually run a regenerative farm, a ranch, uh, what happens on the land, uh, what, what actually the synergisms around the ecosystem that get created there ha occur and how that benefits the rancher, the animals, and the land. Now, Robbie is a co-founder and CEO of Force of Nature, which is a regeneratively sourced meat company based in Austin, Texas, which is really amazing. I encourage you to check it out, forceofnature.com. Robbie's roots run deep in the natural food community. He was the CFO and CEO at Epic, which maybe some of you know. He spent much of the last decade studying regenerative agriculture and ranches all over the world. Through his education, Force of Nature was co-founded with the intention to accelerate the creation of a global regenerative supply network for good 
food and meat. Uh, Fortune Nature works in partnership with land stewards, ranchers, and farmers committed to creating a positive return on the planet, which is a great concept as opposed to positive return on your wallet, but it does that too. With Force of Nature, consumers now have the ability to invest in environmental regeneration by consuming meat that's good for the planet. And it's one of the things as a doctor that I find most difficult is I say, eat regenerative food. Well, where can you find it? How do you get it? Where do you buy it? Well, now there's a place. Uh, he was born in Austin, Texas. Uh, he received a bachelor's degree and a master's from University of Texas. And when he's not building businesses aimed at saving the planet, Robbie can be found on the trail, the ocean, the mountain, the field, always making time to appreciate nature and explore surroundings. He's also a land steward at Rome Ranch where he owns a, reg a regeneratively managed bison. Amazing. And Taylor uh, is the chief bison wrangler. Uh, <laughs> and he's a co-founder of Force of Nature. Uh, in 2017, Taylor and his family purchased Rome Ranch, which is a 900-acre multi-species regenerative ecosystem that I visited, which soil building practices are integrated into every aspect of land management. How do we create more soil? How do we build a healthy ecosystem in order to create healthy food? Uh, in nature's image, the promotion of biodiversity is really the key feature of the ranch. And for this reason, Taylor raises bisons, ducks, chickens, turkeys, wild turkeys come on land. I saw them, uh, geese, pigs, uh, and intentionally creates a habitat for both native and migratory species to co-create on his landscape. Within five years, just five years of management in a regenerative way, the ranch has seen amazing improvements in soil carbon, water infiltration, plant diversity, soil health. Uh, as a living demonstration to the potential of regenerative land management, the ranch hosts thousands of guests from all over the country every year. With a focus on connecting consumers to the land on which we depend, Rome Ranch and Force of Nature hope to amplify regenerative practices within the next generation of land stewards, as well as those currently managing land conventionally. When not wrangling bison, Taylor enjoys spending time outdoors with his family, trail running, cycling, and planting trees. Welcome, Robbie and Taylor. Wow, thanks a lot, Mark. <laughs> sure, that's good. That was a lot. But here's the thing. I went out to Austin, Texas, and I visited you both. And I went out twice to the ranch because I was so compelled. And it was, you know, about an hour and a half drive each way. So it was a big schlep to get there, but it was one of the most moving experiences of my whole life. And the first time I went out there, you gave me a tour of the whole ecosystem. And it was amazing to go out there and see your ranch next to all the other ranches that bordered your ranch. And your ranch was thriving and lush and rich in biodiversity and bald eagles and rivers coming back and creeks coming back and you know wild animals all over the place and turkeys mixing with the wild turkeys. <laughs> it was quite a scene. And next, right next door, the ranchers were struggling. Their land was denuded, was bare. They often had to sell off their cattle because when I went, it was a time of drought and they had to sell off their cattle because they're going to die because they can't eat food, farming and ranching in the conventional way. And so it was like this bold star comparison of a way that restores ecosystems compared to a way that destroys ecosystems to produce our food. And the reality is that in America and around the world globally, increasingly, we have a destructive agricultural system uh, that destroys the environment, destroys biodiversity, destroys the soil, is a big cause of climate change, and produces food that is bad for us and is harmful to the animals. Whereas your ranch does the exact opposite. And I, I want to sort of get into basically the way this all could be. And, and you know, we had many conversations when we were there about how scalable this is and what's going wrong with our food system. So let's start with talking about our current food system and why 
it's so screwed up. Uh, why our food system basically has been designed to create larger and larger ranches and farms, mostly supporting corn and soy farming, and in, in eliminating most of the small family farms in America, making it really hard for farmers to actually succeed unless they're really big. So, Robbie, can you speak to like the big issues in our food system? And what you learned studying regenerative agriculture and ranches all over the world, because you're not the only ones doing this. There's places all over the world that are being demonstration projects for a different way of thinking and growing food. Yeah, no, Marcus, that's a beautiful lead in. I mean, this is obviously a, an extensive topic, so it'll, it'll bear with me as I kind of go into peeling back some of the issues that we, we have in food. Um, but the, the first thing that, that, that comes to mind for me is just the scale of agriculture. I think, you know, as consumers, Sometimes we hear big figures and it's, it's hard to appreciate just how significant the impact of agriculture is on, you know, all of those things that you listed and many other seemingly existential global crises that we face. And so just for some uh, quick back of the napkin math, I mean, the, the earth is about 30 billion acres of, of land and about 11 billion acres of that has agriculture on it. Um, and and, and to, to make that more tangible, the U.S. is about 2 billion acres. So just look at your map. That's the U.S., 2 billion acres. And almost half of that has some form of agriculture practiced on it. So when we talk about the scale and we talk about these practices and, and, and tilling land and spraying chemicals and, these, and, and, and all of the things that we're going to be discussing, just keep that in mind. The, the experience you have when you fly over the U.S. in a plane and you see a checkerboard beneath you is representative of just how much of this is going on. Uh, and, and, I, and I want for consumers to, to appreciate that. So that really has stood, stood out to me to understand that some of these negative externalities and these things we're going to discuss exist. But it also makes me hopeful because to know how much impact potential that we have with subtle changes to do positive things, you know, that same scale applies uh, when, when you start to apply it towards solutions. I'd say the second thing that, that, that I learned and it st stood out to me is this illusion of choice. Um, it's even, it's even partly how we're conditioned to, to think in many, in many cases, but everything gets benchmarked against the status quo, you know, our existing agriculture system. And well, if we do that, you know, it doesn't accomplish this thing like our current system does. Well, the, the reality is our, 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 the status quo is not an option either. Change is inevitable. It is a must. I mean, even from 2012 to 2016, more than half of the agriculture counties in the United States were declared designated disaster areas. That is, the, that is the status at present, wow. actually historically, of, of our food production systems. You look at all of the data, you know, 30% of our most fertile lands are desertified across the globe or desertifying. Um, and so I just think we need to just make sure, make sure to start the conversation that we um, recognize that, that change is necessary, change is inevitable, whether we invite that change or whether it forces itself upon us. Um, and, you know, we're heading towards a point where we won't be able to make food healthy, abundant, or cost-effective, uh, let alone make food at all, if we don't if we don't accept that reality and adopt some change. Um, you know, I, I I do think, and again, you know, going back to your question, so what have I learned, and how does some of this apply beyond that scale and that need for change? I, I see regenerative as 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 a solution, and there's there's a lot of reasons I know we'll get into, um, but ultimately, you know, it invests. Uh, and it builds resiliency uh, into our food system uh, in opposition to the status quo, which simply extracts uh, from the, the system. It, it creates positive and it celebrates externalities instead of 
uh, deferring and uh, ignoring negative existential externalities. Uh, it mirrors and emulates the architecture of nature and, and biology instead of combating it with chemical and industrial warfare. It's a system that promotes life instead of one that aggressively seeks to eliminate it. And I, I like to say it ultimately replace, replaces a vicious system uh, with a virtuous one. And, and I know that you have uh, some questions coming up too. There, there's a few other things I'd like to, to touch on on this point. You know, I think you mentioned the uh, the, the, the farm bill. Um, I know it's near and dear to, to both of us. Uh, only a few single digit percentage points of that bill effectively are dedicated to conserving and securing our food production systems. So if we acknowledge, you know, that beautiful Wendell Berry quote that you have in, in the front of your book that we all, we all talk about, you know, we have a food system that ignores our health and a health system that ignores our food. Yeah, the, the, the health of our land, the health of our land and our food system will be a reflection of our own health. And that, that's just a natural law that we can't, uh, refute and 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 yet when it comes to these regulations and and um systems that we we put forth to promote synergy towards our food production um that resiliency um that conservation that securing of our food production system is an afterthought i think the other more that comes to mind as in learning as we've gone through all of this is just understanding how the consumer is taken advantage of and manipulated um, they, they, an average consumer sees cheap shelf prices, um, and, 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 and is told that that's all that matters. Everything else is hidden. And so you just see red meat and cellophane. And the only thing that's worth discussing and acknowledging is the price at the shelf. Um, and, and the truth is to, to obtain the outcome where we are today, there has been, had to be a significant compromise in value along the way. And, and even still, and while we're losing that value, the, the truth is the food itself that has a cheap shelf price is among the most expensive. It probably certainly yeah. is the most expensive. Uh, and, and both on Can you explain that? I think that's a really important point because we think when we buy food in the grocery store, the price we're paying is the true cost of food. But the, the fact is that actually for every dollar we spend on food, there's another $2 in cost to society in terms of healthcare costs, loss of biodiversity, social justice issues, environmental damage. I mean, just the list goes on and on. And I think that's an underestimate. The Rockefeller Foundation put out a report called The True Cost of Food and where they basically said, we have over a trillion dollar food system, but it costs us $3 trillion in damage. And they left out a lot of things that also should be included that, that actually weren't even included in that calculus. So it's actually probably maybe even three, four, five, six times the cost to society, to humans, to the planet that we pay at the checkout counter. Oh yeah, absolutely. No, I'm glad you asked because I, I I love diving in on on this one, and I think it sort of helps round out the the, the initial question uh, as well. So I, I think you you pointed to some of the deferred costs, and I'll do, I'll get into those. But let's just talk about on an absolute basis the direct cost. You know, if you look at uh, Ruffles potato chips. They're, they're twice as expensive <laughs> per ounce. I try not to our... look at them. No, I try not <laughs> to look at them. <laughs> yeah, Taylor and I did, an, did, an, did a, a whole podcast on our own podcast called Where Hope Grows. And I think Ruffle, Ruffles were $1.19 uh, an ounce and our regenerative beef was 55 cents an ounce. So it was more than wow. more than twice wow. as expensive. We we never, and, and we're told, be, you know, this meat is expensive, right? But we don't bat an off. Well, probably, probably price per nutrient. 
it actually was was far cheaper for the media. Oh yeah, we did it. We did a joke, right? Uh, yeah, a a absolutely. You know, you're one. One's making you sick. One's making you healthy. We even went and and bought a meal at a at a at a, at a, a, a fast food restaurant. We did it at a, a gas station. And it was less expensive to make a meal for our families at home. And, and Taylor jokingly bought a bottle of Pepto Bismol with his uh, convenience store meal because he knew that. Yeah, he you definitely need that. You need some. You need some yeah. Pepsi or something. Yeah. I don't even want to glorify calling that food. I, I'm, I'm starting to call those things those hyper processed um, offerings food like substances because that's effectively what they are. But but again, you know, we don't bat an eye at the price people pay for a seven dollar coffee or expensive bottle of wine or nine dollar bottle of water and bourbons and vinegars or seven dollar coffee yeah it's crazy right <laughs> I mean, we, we just the, the but again at the at the cash register candies like these things are way more expensive and 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 yet we're told like we appreciate those as cheap but we think of meat as expensive so again on an absolute basis i'd say that this food is actually less expensive than people realize and it's valuable but we're conditioned to think that differently um i think the, the other thing too that we're told because it's cheap uh, is that we can waste it. You know, the something like 40% of all food is wasted. That's 60 million tons, $200 billion. I mean, it's just the things that we do because we've been conditioned to believe certain things are, are remarkable. When you come at it with a different perspective, it really changes how you may act. But then, then of course, there's what you talked about too. Some of the, um, the, the other things you don't see uh, in, in the shelf price beyond the absolute basis. And, and, and the reality is for cheap food, consumers pay three times. They pay for it in the form of taxes that go to these subsidy systems. They pay for it at the register. And of course, they pay for those deferred costs. And you, you mentioned the deferred costs. I mean, the U.S. has to pay the government of Brazil over $150 million a year because we've been flooding international markets with crops sold at below the cost of production. Uh, I have some pretty crazy stats on the big four meat companies. I'll save those for later. But, you know, ultimately, and even in, 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 I was looking at the healthcare costs, you referenced those. I think you you, you state $3.7 trillion as the cost to treat chronic disease, chronic disease in the US. You do the math on that, that's $557 per household per week. So if you want to begin to appreciate the <laughs> hidden cost or the true cost of food, add $557 per week to your grocery bill and you can start to understand. Yeah. That's the expectation that we're that. that we're putting on ourselves and then there's the and then there's the social issues there's farmers farmer suicide there's you know all of these compromises that we're making to the system stability and to the security we've seen the u.s government begin to feign acknowledging this by putting billions of dollars of incentives into opening up more processing plants and and, and doing some of these things but um you know at, at, at the end of the day our, our in, in this world travel and in learning about regenerative, I've, I've come to this realization that our, our food system and our food culture have been captured and it's killing us. And meanwhile, regenerative is thriving all over the world. 40% of farms on the planet are still submit subsistence farms. We're told one thing that promotes the current system is the only option. But the truth and reality that I hope we'll discover on this podcast today tells an entirely different story. Yeah, that's incredible, Robbie. Thanks for that summary. And I just just sort of reiterate, and then I want to jump to to Taylor because I think I want to sort of dig into actually the reality of what it is to actually run and live on a regenerative ranch and farm. Because we talk about it in the abstract a lot, but this is it's really kind of got me into the weeds and the dirt and the soil literally when I was there. Um, but you know, just in terms of getting back to the cost thing, just just let's just take the cost of corn, which is just such a foundational product 
in our food system. It's the it's the foundational substance through which most processed food is made. Uh, most of the sugar we eat is from corn, and and the cost is just astounding. So we 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 have the damage to the soil that comes from the nitrogen fertilizers, the pesticides, and the herbicides, the damage to humans that comes to that, the loss of biodiversity. We have the nitrogen runoff from the soil into the rivers and lakes and streams that goes into the ocean that uh, kills, you know, hundreds of thousands of metric tons of fish every year and, 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 and seafood that's for human, human consumption uh, that creates dead zones all over the world that, that affect 400 million people. Uh, what is the cost of that? I don't even know you could kind of quantify that. It's, it's literally trillions of dollars. Uh, we then we then um, make that food into processed food, which then um, we subsidize for the the government. Basically, 75% of food stamps or SNAP is processed food, 10% is soda, and most of that is you know coming from corn and other industrial products like soy. And then, and then we pay for Medicare, Medicaid on the back end. So, like we're paying three or four times for that corn as taxpayers. And and we think, you know, we're 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 in this financial crisis now. We're talking about the debt ceiling. There's government's going to shut down. I mean, it, a lot of this has to do with our food system and the chronic uh, consequences that come from, from the food system. Hey everyone, it's Dr. Mark here. I've been tracking my glucose with the help of levels for several years now, and it's become a crucial part of optimizing my health and my diet. One of the keys to an optimized diet is monitoring your glucose intake, otherwise known as sugar. <laughs> Poor glucose control is tied to all kinds of issues like weight gain, fatigue, diabetes, Alzheimer's, heart disease, and stroke. But it can be hard to know exactly how much glucose you're getting in your diet. That's where levels comes in. They show you how food affects your health in real time through continuous glucose monitors. In fact, I remember I was eating out with a friend once, and although we ordered a really healthy meal, I way overate, and when I checked my blood sugar levels, they were off the charts high. So that's when I learned the importance of moderating my food intake and not going overboard, something I would have known without Levels help. And right now, you can join Levels and receive an additional two months free on your annual membership when you order at levels.link forward slash hymen. That's levels, L-E-B-E-L-S, dot link l-i-n-k forward slash hymen your first purchase will include a one month supply of continuous glucose monitors and a 12 month software membership and again if you go to levels.link forward slash hymen levels is offering an additional two months of their annual membership free i don't think there's anything better than waking up feeling super rested relaxed and energized when we get high quality sleep that's the norm but without it our simple day-to-day tasks can seem impossible and our health suffers. That's why I'm always looking for ways to upgrade my sleep routine and bamboo sheet sets from Cozy Earth is my new favorite way to get an amazing night's rest. You might be surprised to learn that many types of bedding out there contain toxins that can off-gas into your air and absorb into your skin. Do you want to sleep on formaldehyde? I don't either. So I know that Cozy Earth's products are certified to be free from harmful chemicals and that's why I love them. Sleep actually impacts every part of our health. It helps us maintain a healthy weight by balancing hormones and blood sugar, provides time to detox our brains, lets our muscles and organs rest and repair. But so many of us don't get enough sleep or the right quality of sleep to allow the body to do all these important things. Better sleep is the cornerstone of better health and is something we all have the power to work on. I know nice bedding can feel like a big investment, so Cozy Earth makes it super easy to try out their products with a 30-day free trial and a 10-year warranty. Plus, right now, they're offering the best sale price ever with 40% off. Just go to CozyEarth.com, use the code MARK40 at checkout, and that's CozyEarth, C-O-Z-Y-E-A-R-T-H.com 
with the code MARK40 and check out. And I know you'll love these sheets as much as I do. Now let's get back to this week's episode of The Doctor's Pharmacy. Taylor, I sort of want to flip now to talk about uh, what you've done, which is pretty remarkable. You basically created a company called Epic, which was a meat bar company from grass-fed meat. I, I used a lot of the products. I didn't, didn't even know you, but I thought they were great. And there was bison bars and venison bars and you know, grass-fed beef bars. Uh, there was salmon jerky and all kinds of stuff. It was really great. And you sold that and you could have kind of, you know, bought a house in the South of France and, you know, I had a great time and checked out the rest of your life, but you decided to take that and, and turn it into a 900 acre regenerative ranch in Texas. Um, and I visited the ranch and met both of you there and you took me around and gave a tour, a whole bunch of people. And, and one of the things that, that, um, we also did was a bison harvest, which was sounds kind of gruesome. Uh, I kind of want you to talk about that a little bit, but it was, it was one of the most uh, emotional, compelling, moving experiences of my life, and, and and I'll share a little bit about why. But I think you know I'd love to sort of ha- sort of take us on the journey from the food system that we just heard about, which is this incredibly destructive food system that's killing the earth, that's hurting the animals, that's hurting humans, that's making us sick, and and talk about a regenerative system that you created and what is that and what does it look like and what do you do every day and and what happened to the land that was basically conventional ranch land that you took and reimagined into this beautiful, productive, alive place. Yeah, it's so wonderful having you out at the ranch coming and visit us. So thanks for making that journey. And we got to have you two days in a row, which was pretty <laughs> awesome. I like I was so stoked to see you day two. You came back for more. Um, and so, you know, what, what we're trying to do out here at, at Rome Ranch, we're on 900 acres, like you said, in Fredericksburg, Texas, which is in the hill country. Uh, we're in a little bit of a river valley. But, you know, what is unique about Rome Ranch, it's the fact is that you can, that this is just a microcosm for all land and how it's been managed globally. And so when you look at the history you have, you know, this part of Texas, it was one of the last parts of the United States to be settled because we had some amazing indigenous tribes, specifically the Comanche Indians, literally rolling back westward expansion. This land was teeming with some of the finest horseback warriors and cavalry warriors ever yeah. to roam the You don't planet. want to mess with the Comanche, right? <laughs> no mess way. With <laughs> and so this part of Texas was some of the last part to be settled by Europeans. And believe it or not, they gave out land grants. And so people came, flooded this area primarily from Germany to escape oppression and, and lack of freedom and lack of opportunity. And they risked life and limb to come to farm and to celebrate in agriculture and co-create with mother nature's uh, wisdom and her, and her gifts. And so, you know, what happened a little over a hundred years ago, we got, we started seeing an industrialization of that agricultural system mm-hmm. and this land, it had been everything that you had m- mentioned, you know, previously corn, it had been a monoculture of, of peanuts, of wheat, of silo, of Milo, of soy, one cash crop after another was, the only reason it was transitioning to another cash crop was because the ecosystem was collapsing. The natural resources had been extracted to the brink at which it could no longer produce that one food or plagues of insects came into the systems, which could not be combated. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. so when we bought the ranch six years ago, we we called it perfectly destroyed. I mean, it, it doesn't get worse than this where over 450 acres of it looked like the moon. 
And the old man mm. who sold it to us wow. was literally spraying it with herbicides until the ink on the contract dried up, you know, dried. It was Ooh. his last day on the ranch. He was tilling and spraying. And so it, it really didn't get much worse as far as having all the mother nature's functioning cycle shattered. The nutrient cycle was depleted. The energy cycle wasn't working. The water cycle was in dysfunction, et cetera, et cetera. And my wife and I saw this as the perfect opportunity to find the most neglected, abused, extracted industrial piece of land we could find and then restore it and share that journey into regenerative agriculture with a greater community. And really what we learned in this process is thankfully mother nature's capacity for forgiveness and for healing is far greater than our own species capacity for destruction and ignorance. And so the beautiful thing is what, what we've observed in six years has exceeded any of our wildest dreams as far as how quickly mother nature can restore and rebuild and heal and really what we're doing is we're looking into mother nature for guidance and for wisdom and the architecture that's been put in place for billions of years. We're recognizing that as a species, we're some of the last people to be invited to the party. You know, we're just showing up to the dance, whereas bison have been you know, present for two and a half million years. And so, yeah, we're the other thing, into- I never thought there were bison in Texas because you think of them like in the Great Plains out west, but actually like there were all over the place, right? Bison, keystone species. I mean, they're our national mammal now for good reason. They roamed all the way from northern Canada into central Mexico. So all in between in in North America. And our most fertile food systems were now we extract through industrial agricultural practices. That fertility was gifted to us by millennia of bison co-creating with landscapes. And so we're taking a step back and we're allowing the wisdom of the bison to show us what to do. And so we raise bison, we raise turkeys, we do pigs, we have ducks, chickens, we have honeybees. But then more than anything, what we really want to celebrate is the animals that are allowing us to be here, which is, like you mentioned, the bald eagles, the coyotes, uh, the bobcats, the great horned owls, the mountain lions, things that Robbie and I grew up in central Texas and we had never seen a bald eagle in our lives. We're, We're 40 years old. And so to have a, we saw one, we saw one when I was there, we, we saw it. Yeah. We just never knew that was a possibility. It had been kind of lost in written history, but you know, the beautiful thing is that once that ecosystem starts and you, you begin creating that virtuous cycle where it's functioning at a higher level, more life wants to participate, more life volunteers. Like you mentioned, we have wild turkeys now electing to be on our ranch, breeding our hens. And those are our heritage hens. And so that's just, that's the option. Those wild turkeys could be anywhere they want, but there's something about the resources, about the environment, about the food, the habitat, just the amount of energy that emanates from this land that draws more life into the system. Yeah, it's so important. So, so, you know, one of the things that was sort of amazing to me is that, you know, you know, you, you weren't kind of ripping up the land like most ranchers do. You weren't, um, actually kind of growing one crop to feed a bunch of cows you you had you know 30 or 40 different seeds many of which are kind of native to the area many of which restore nitrogen in the soil instead of having to pour nitrogen fertilizer the plant the plants actually provide the nitrogen back in the the soil isn't disturbed you have this incredible machine that was like a 
no-till seed machine that just made a tiny little kind of groove in the soil, then placed the seed and patted it down. It was the coolest thing I'd ever seen. And and uh, we were really like, we literally went out of the field, we were eating peas from the field, probably stealing it from the bison. <laughs> and it was like, it was amazing. And then, you know, you're, you're, you know, you're talking about how that you were in a drought right then. We were there in, in uh, March and there was a drought. And all your, your neighbors literally had to sell their cattle, but you still had all the bison on your land because the soil was able to hold all the water that, that did fall. And there wasn't a lot that falls in that area, but, but it held all the water. And that there were creeks, you said there were navigational creeks that had been dried up for decades and decades that the settlers used to navigate their way out west. And, and now the creeks were coming back to life and the water was seeping through the soil and into the creeks. And like you said, the bald eagles were coming back and there were plants that were germinating seeds that had been dormant in the soil for who knows how many years, hundred maybe plus years. And when the bison pooped on them, they somehow had this unique relationship with these species of bison that the something special in the bison poop actually caused these seeds to germinate. So it's like this incredible ecosystem that was being restored and and it's, it was just like incredible to see and what was really interesting to me was was just th these were basically still wild animals like you barely did anything to them they just kind of like roamed around they call it roam ranch i guess they just roamed around and and you kind of moved them from pasture to pasture to pasture in order to feed on the grass and not overgraze and then move it to the next spot and then not overgraze to the next spot and by doing that you created this really incredibly healthy uh, species. You didn't have a lot of vet bills. There wasn't antibiotics. There weren't pumping full of hormones. You weren't doing much except water, giving them water and, and, and planting a few seeds to help grow these, these new native species. And, and they were super healthy and vibrant and, um, and they were living in their social groups. And it was just like, it was quite interesting to see how, how I wouldn't know if I can say happy they were, but they were living in a way that was really very much similar to how they lived on the land 152 and 300 years ago. Um, and, and, uh, you had this incredible way of, of actually calling the herd in order to produce meat that you could then sell. And, and I'd, I'd sort of love you to share a little bit about that process. Cause for me, you know, we're so divorced from our food. We're, we're so disconnected. We go to the grocery store, we see a slab of meat or a piece of chicken or whatever, and you don't really connect it to the animal. You don't understand how it was produced. You don't know any of that. And, and, and even vegetables are fruit, right? Basically, but especially animals. And, and yet, um, it was this incredibly moving thing that happened that it's called this bison harvest. So I'd love you to sort of share a little bit about that experience, uh, why you do it, you know, what, what, what it's like and, and why it's actually probably the most humane way to actually raise and, and, um, and grow and harvest meat. Yeah. You, wow. You paid attention during all those tours. You get a plus. <laughs> I feel like you're ready to give those tours. <laughs> I mean, wait, wait, this is like, this is already like two or three months later. I still was like, I tell you, it was one of the most moving things. You know, they always say that your memory is, is connected to emotional experiences and when you have a deep emotional experience. It, it's stored memory. And I, it was one of the most compelling, moving things that I'd ever seen being on that ranch. Cause you know, I've, I've written a lot about regenerative agriculture. I visited some, you know, organic farms and I've done that, but I, I've really never seen a, a bison ranch before. Yep. So yeah, the, the bison harvest, this is a, a beautiful community experience that we curate and we do it during the cooler seasons, the cooler months of the year for obvious reasons so that we can take our time, be outside, 
really celebrate the life of this animal together with with people who come from all over the world. I mean, we've had people travel to Texas from Australia, from Argentina, you know, obviously all over the United States to attend in this. And what happens is, you know, a community of strangers come together and we collect at the ranch early in the morning and we talk about in our in our view, in our perspective, how to truly honor an animal. And the way that we think about honoring an animal, we'll just say there's three steps involved. And the first step is allowing that animal, which in this circumstance would be the North American bison, we allow it the opportunity to express its full innate biological potential. And so that gift that the bison gives through millions of years of coevolution with our grasslands is that it is allowed to create a net positive return on the ecosystem. So by that bison being there, and we're managing that bison as that bison has co-created with landscapes for millennia, we are drawing down carbon, we're increasing biodiversity, we're infiltrating water more effectively, we're creating habitat. I mean, the list goes on and on and on. So that's really step one. If you want to honor an animal, you have to allow it to exist as it was biologically engineered to exist and eat the food that it was engineered to consume to eat. And then the second premise is how that animal dies is as equally important to how that animal lives. And so for a snapshot in the industrial agriculture system, what, what it looks like with large animals like bison, you know, cows, sheep, goats, is they're typically loaded on a trailer, a livestock trailer. Sometimes it's a double-decker trailer, so the animals on top are on the animals underneath them. In the circumstance of bison, animals have been, are shipped across the entire country. And so one of the places that one of our local places that we we bring bison to occasionally, last time we were there dropping off a load, there was an 18 wheeler that had just driven 20 hours from Wyoming to deliver um, 100 bison for slaughter. And like you said, these bison, they, they have retained all their wild genetics. They're not domesticated. So for that species to be loaded on a trailer, to be taken off the land that it recognizes as its home, stripped from its community, stripped from its food source, put on a trailer transported on a highway at high speeds for 20 hours, that is high stress. That changes yeah, yeah. the spiritual energy of that animal. It changes the the taste of the animal and the texture of the animal. And then that animal is unloaded from a trailer and it's put in a very sterile, artificial environment, which would be, which would be a, 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 a slaughter plant. And it's like a mechanized, industrialized end of life where that animal is scared um, it's, it's stressed and it's, it's just a terrible way to transition into the next form. And so what, what we do at the ranch, which is very different is we do a field harvest. And, and so to contrast what I just painted in this circumstance, that group of community. So including you, when you came out, we drove out into the herd of the bison and we were very low stress. It was a very peaceful moment. Everyone's matching the energy, putting in the right energy to take out the right energy and a shooter targets a specific predetermined animal. That animal falls in the field. And then we allow this really sacred space, this, this opportunity for people to be very present. We, we prohibit cell phones during this moment. You better not film this because we want your eyes on it. Because in many circumstances, this is the first time people have ever intimately interacted with death. And this is something that our species has done for... 250,000 years, you know, modern humans, we have done this in community and we've had an intimate connection with the animal that through its gift is sustaining our life, sustaining our bodies. 
And so we allow about 10 minutes after the harvest for each animal in the herd to come up and really process the loss of one of its herd mates. And it looks like some circumstances, every animal will actually nudge it. The last animal to leave its side is going to be either its calf, if it's a cow, or it could be, you know, um, the, if we if we harvest a bull, it could be its mom. It's three, you know, three years of growth. Its mom is still by its side at its death. But we think that's a, a beautiful end of life transition where you are out in your community, you're with your family, you are eating your favorite food, you are on the land that you love and that you know is home. And then in a split second, it's lights out. You feel no suffering. And so there really is an expansion of energy at that moment where the herd sees something and they feel something and they process it. And to observe it as a human is really special and sacred and it's something to learn from. It was remarkable. I mean, I, you know, I don't, I don't exactly understand what was going on in the herd. And I imagine this might happen in the wild too, where all the other bison gathered around and like almost paid their last respects. And it was this really sacred moment, almost like waiting for the bison spirit to kind of leave. And then I, I don't know, I don't know how to sort of think about it, but it was, it was one of the most moving things and everybody was just silent and people were crying. And then, and then afterwards, you know, the bison was, was, was actually, uh, butchered and, uh, you know, to watch it, you know, actually be butchered and then to actually eat the raw bison heart, to see the liver, to see the heart, to see the lungs, to see the intestines. I mean, the intestines were huge because they have to process all this grass. And, uh, what was really interesting was that, you know, when we, we harvested it, the entire inside of the fat was all like bright orange. Uh, can you explain why that's bright orange? Because most cow fat is white. Like if you go buy a steak, you know, in the grocery store, it's typically white fat. Why is it so orange? Yeah, it's two things. It's it's a reflection of the animal's diet. And so it's the fact that that animal is allowed to select between a very biodiverse mix of green growing plants and where it's fixing the nutrients that add to the higher level of omega-3s in the fat. And that's in contrast to an industrial feedlot grain-fed cow or bison where um, on the inside of that carcass, that fat would have no color. That fat would be white. Um, and so it's very different. And then the second component too is the age of the animal where bison, because they've never been bred for production, they're still wild animals. It takes three years to have a grass-fed animal ready for harvest. And, and because of that, that animal is living a lot longer of a life. It's allowing those minerals and those vitamins to be fixed through the circulation of blood, through the, through the muscles. They're very active animals. It's just over time, it's an accumulation of nutrient density. Whereas in a beef cow operation, it could be, um, you know, 14 to 16 months, as little as 14 to 16 months of an animal's life before they are harvested in that industrial setting. So can you talk about the, the difference between the quality of the nutrition and the meat you get from, for example, a regeneratively raised bison versus a feedlot cow? Yep. Robbie, do you want to talk about, have you been reading up on some of the Stefan Van Fleet information? And mm -hmm. Yeah, his, <clears throat> Stefan, I know you've had him on the podcast, Mark. Yeah, he yeah. A, he issued a report on this something maybe less than a month ago, and they took a herd uh, of, of bison and, and, and it was and it was something remarkable. I think it was only the last four months of life. They were they were all raised on pasture their entire life, and then in only the last four months took uh, some and continued to finish them on pasture, as Taylor has described. And then the others put them into a 
uh, a, a, they called them feeding pens. They would be the, the best case example of a feedlot. It was, they, they were lower density, still free choice with grass and other feed supplements. So not piled shoulder to shoulder, not fed exclusively corn and soy and leftover Doritos and the other crap that goes into feedlots. Um, and, and, Skittles, and only, Skittles. <laughs> that was a great only, story. Right? I'm like, yeah. this truck that spilled in and like had an accident and had giant, uh, truckload a, a tractor trailer 18 wheeler of expired skittles that was on its way to a feedlot to be fed to the cows yeah yeah and they're not doing a very good job of removing the wrappers on those either but <laughs> oh, you know, that's, that's beside the point so in, the, in this case you know that that un unfortunate reality of the confinement feed system that most of the industry relies upon isn't even the example of confinement we're talking about here we're talking about a luxurious confinement system relative to that and only for the last four months. And yet still, and you've talked a lot about phytonutrients and phytochemicals, these important magical compounds um, in food. I think there was something like 3.2 times more phytochemicals found in the pasture raised animals meat than in the ones that spent the last four months in confinement. And so um, you know, when you talk about nutrient density, it is it is unbelievable to think about just how profound that that can be. When you look at they were measuring something like 1500 different compounds and some 600 yeah. something of them yeah. were exponentially more significant in the pasture finished system. So spend your whole life there. You know, it's just it's really exciting for me, but it's also cutting edge. I mean, this just hasn't been really researched to this extent yet. And it's just we're scratching the surface. And, and, and I think we'll continue to find more and more examples of. Um, the benefits of nutritionally and from a health perspective of these systems. So, so that's amazing, Robbie. What, and, and Taylor, what, what have you learned most uh, by being a regenerative rancher and, and actually doing the work as opposed to talking about it like I do? <laughs> yeah. You know, to, to me, the, it really boils down to a couple of fundamental uh, nuggets and, and these are really gifts, the architecture, you know, it's in place. It's mother nature's, wisdom that she shares. And, and the biggest one for me is just the focus, the emphasis on the importance of biodiversity in a system, which really is one of the key differentiators between a conventional industrial system and a regenerative system, where in industrial agriculture, we're typically growing a single species of plant or even a single animal. Like you could have, you know, a pig farmer only raises pigs. Well, nowhere in nature will you find a monoculture. It, it doesn't exist because through biodiversity, nature is programming a system of resilience and a system of synergies and ways to have mutualistic relationships where the entire system is elevated. And so through that example and through that wisdom of biodiversity, I mean, as much as we can do to celebrate every living organism on this plant and setting a place at the table for every single migratory bird or every single native um, mammal, we want them here because they all serve a role. So important. I think, can you talk, talk also about the sort of the, you know, the concern that I think it's legitimate concern that, you know, animal agriculture is, a, is actually a destructive force for climate uh, and the concern that meat actually may be harmful to you. What, what is your kind of current thinking about these things? Cause I think, you know, there's a lot of conversation about how it's important that we eat less meat, that we be vegan in order to, protect our health and the health of the planet. And I, and I, so I know you were a vegetarian and I was too. Uh, and, and I think both of us now think up quite differently. So can you kind of talk about, you know, that journey for yourself and also 
what you know as a as a rancher about about the the real value of integrating animals into an agricultural system and into our own diet. Sure. Um, I think you already alluded to it earlier on the podcast, but there's never been a point in human history where we have been further separated from the source of our food, from the source of, of life. And I think that is with intention and that's with design. The big food companies don't want you to have intimate relationships with farms and ranches. And there's something like less than 1% of U.S. citizens have actually visited a farm or a ranch in which they buy food from. And so just the scale of that separation. And, and when you don't have that connection with a farm, with a ranch, with a rancher, well, you're really just outsourcing your, um, your purchasing patterns and your habits. And you, and you don't have a realistic portrayal of what's happening out on land. And so in our journey, you know, it was, it was going to monocultures of plants. Um, it was visiting suppliers of people who were raising beef cows regeneratively. And it was seeing that fence line that you so articulately described, and it was seeing it for yourself. And so the, the people who advocate for less animals, more plants, or more processed plant-based foods in our diets, I, I have to say, when was the last time you've been out to um, you know, a soy farm or a corn farm or, you know, a wheat farm or a rice farm. And the truth is those people for the most part have never actually seen the food system that they're advocating for, but it truly is a, a, an ecological desert for all practical purposes. When you fight mother nature's desire for biodiversity, your tools are mechanical tools, chemical tools, and and as much destruction as you can create to, to, to control that monoculture. And so for us in, in our own wisdom journey, it's just seeing it for yourself is believing. Now, we're never going to advocate for an animal-based or meat-based diet or a system where animals are confined. We think that's inhumane. We think th that should be illegal. You know, um, that's not good for the animal. That's not good for the consumer. That's not good for the environment. But what we're advocating for is very different. So I also think a lot of the research and a lot of the discussion out there is focusing on these feedlot systems, but it's neglecting to adjust this regenerative system where it's not only animals, but it's plants and animals in synchrony and in harmony as Mother Nature has designed that system for billions of years. Yeah, it's so true. You know, I, I think uh, I often refer to myself as an ecological doctor because I take care of the human ecosystem. And as a result, people get healthy and you don't actually have to treat disease. In the same way, you just create a healthy ecosystem and the bison thrive, wildlife thrives, the soil thrives, water systems thrive, you're resistant to drought and floods, you create you know, incredible value we call ecosystem services that give back to the planet as opposed to steal from the planet. I mean, basically there's $2 trillion every year that we steal from the planet and in ecosystem services. And that means we steal the soil, we steal the water resources, we kill the biodiversity. Like there's a cost to all that. And it, it's, it's actually not insignificant and we pay it. Uh, and we're paying it in many ways through, you know, climate change, for example, one third of all the carbon in the atmosphere now is from the loss of soil carbon through the mechanistic way we grow food and the industrialization of agriculture. People don't think about that. Or, you know, the fact that we're seeing droughts and floods and extreme weather patterns. Part of that is due to the fact that our soils and our lands can't manage water anymore. Just like it was so striking to me to see this desert on one side of the fence and your lush, verdant 
you know, ranch on the other side of the fence to see drought on one side of the land and like a creek come back to life on the other in the middle of a drought. So it was like, it was really brought home for me. It's not just this abstract idea, but to see it happen and boom, it happened fast. We're not talking about a hundred years, which it took to destroy the land. We're talking about a couple of years in which you multiplied the organic matter in the soil by sixfold, which is just, you know, crazy when you think about it. And so I think we're in this moment where we have to come to grips with, you know, the reality that we can't do things this way we're doing them anymore. And we can't provide a, a food system that, that grows the food the way we do, that produces the, 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 the sort of amount of industrial food that's killing us and making us sick and the planet sick. And one of the things that I kind of loved about being there was just seeing how this actually could be done in real life. And so, Robbie, I'd love for you to talk about your learnings as you've gone around the planet, literally the planet, finding and sourcing uh, animal food from regenerative farms. And, 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 and before you do that, I want to just kind of either of you to talk a quick summary of what's the difference between a regenerative or organic or grass-fed or conventional, because a lot of terms are thrown around. I think people just need to clarify that. And then I want you to sort of talk about the, the scale of this issue because you know this sounds great it's cute you have a hobby ranch whatever 900 acres but we got to feed the world right so it's not scalable it's a pipe dream it's a little bit of a nice fantasy for a bunch of hippies who want to you know grow grass-fed meat what what actually uh, can this be scaled to and how can this be really a, a global solution so talk about first what is regenerative agriculture and then what you've learned as 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 a potential for scale in this area and what have you done actually with force of nature to sort of create a marketplace for these places around the world that are doing the right thing. Happy to get into that. You know, I think I talked a lot about the learnings from traveling, traveling around and, and, and just highlighting again, the scale and, and um, concerning realities that this food production system are, are manifesting on at a global scale. Um, and, you know, when I think about what regenerative is uh, and particularly how it, how it varies from the, the standard system, as well as from the organic system, Everything we've been, everything I highlighted earlier on, and, and discussed those those um, global crises from pollinators to dead zones to, you know, things that you didn't even mention like glyphosate showing up in urine and breast milk and you know, re oh, that. reproductive <laughs> rates down and cancer rates up and life expectancy declining and nobody wants to talk about it. Um, you know, all all of these things that we point to as challenges, I, I believe, are, are, are significantly, if not entirely. The result of of that convention that conventional industrial agriculture system, um, I think organic is is an, is a critical milestone in the journey to improving our food system. But it is not a destination. Um, I don't I do not want to disparage it because it's been so necessary in beginning to peel back the layers of the onions and getting to the core of the problem. Um, and what it does really well is it prohibits certain practices like the spraying of various chemicals directly onto the food and directly onto the land. Um, almost half, 40, something 40% of which run off, like, like you had discussed, and go under waterways and oceans. Um, and, it, and it prohibits other certain practices. Um, but so, but is, just can you just define, define regenerative agriculture? What is it? It's like, it's like five principles, 10 things. Like what, what, what is the current the thinking about? What, what determines a regenerative system? Yeah, so so getting you know getting past or, organic and into regenerative, you know, in its simplest form, it's it's farming in nature's image, and it, and it replaces. Um, the system we've been discussing, that's which is based off of chemical inputs and industrial domination of land, as well as animals, um, and, it, and it replaces it with one that seeks to see land and life and everything in between thrive, right? It's working with 
that wisdom um, encoded into billions of years of evolution instead of trying to fight against it. But my understanding there's like principles like no tillage, leaving roots in the ground, not using chemicals, integrating animals. Like there's these, these principles. I don't know. I probably missed a few, but those are really important. And, and I sort of, why are they so important? And maybe, maybe, maybe Taylor, you're the guy who's doing it every day. So you could, you know, if you have a quick summary and then we can kind of get into the, what you're seeing around the world, Robbie. Yeah. The, so what you're alluding to is the six principles of soil health, which are, it's just this beautiful uh, framework. And again, this is based on the idea that all farmland, all ranch land was hewn from an ecosystem. And so it, at one point in time before humans changed the landscape, that land operated at a very high level because of basic ecological principles and roles that were, that were interconnected and playing out at a very uh, functional level. And so what you're talking about, I'm going to just roll through them really quick, but one is yeah. minimizing soil disturbance. Number two is having a green growing plant year round. Number three so is cover crops, like never leaving the soil bare. Bingo, buddy. It's not leaving the soil bare, but it's also utilizing the power of photosynthesis to put carbon in the soil and to feed the biology of the soil system. Hmm. Um, number four, we will say is positive animal impact, which in our mind, that's the most important one. It's like in all ecosystems, animals are a part of that ecosystem. When you remove animals, especially from savannas and grasslands, those ecosystems will collapse eventually. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yep. And number six would be context. And so that, that basically context, says that, yeah. yes. And that, that is waking up in the morning and looking at your own beautiful face in the mirror and realizing that you're a human and that we're all different and that we all have different goals and we all have different resources. We have different finances. We have different ecological regions. We're managing different rainfall, different soil types. What's right for me might not be what's right for you. And so really embracing right. that principle. Yeah, if you're in a lush place, like in, you know, in, in like, you know, California or something like that, it's different than if you're in like in the, in the sort of deserty Texas, right? So it's, it's exactly. different. I always say like, hey, if you love, I love bananas. I just ate a banana with <laughs> some beef. And if I want to grow bananas here in central Texas, well, that's probably a terrible idea because they're going to get <laughs> <Bad> annihilated <laughs> by the first food we have. Yeah. Yeah. Those, those principles are really critical, Mark. And those are, thanks, thanks for pushing and asking on that. In fact, Taylor and I did a, did a, a, a a podcast on our own channel. We spent an hour and a half and all we did was go through those principles. Yeah, that's great. Uh, that's great. So, so, so Robbie, now take, take us through what you're seeing globally in force of nature's role, because force of nature isn't a ranch. It's basically a aggregator, uh, just marketer and distributor of regenerative products from around the world. And as a doctor, I'm like I said before, I want my patients to try to eat regenerative meat. I write about it. And in my head, as I'm writing this, I'm like, Good luck finding it, you know, in my head. <laughs> and I'm like, and maybe one day this will be true. It's like Steve Jobs takes the uh, CD player out of the computer. I'm like, what the hell are you doing? You know, we need a CD player. How am I going to put my music and my watch my videos? And like, you know, you just don't even see the future. But like, there is there there is a future out there that looks quite different. And I think you know, Force of Nature to me is is one of the most important companies out there, actually helping people to find and and use these products and support these. Uh, often small and growing uh, ranches and farms around the world. Yeah, the you know, ultimately what we're trying to do is 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 create awareness and access for consumers at, 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 in its simplest form, and then I'll, I'll expand on that. Obviously, but consumers are so powerful. You know, nobody's going to make a product a consumer won't won't buy. Um, and I think the reality on our food system, all the stuff that we've been talking about and we'll continue to talk about, 
is that the, it's, it's either not available to the consumer, they're just not aware, or it's, it's not presented in a way that they can actually process and, and make tangible. And, 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 then, and then beyond that, even a call to action where, okay, now that I know this, I'm inspired. I've come to a Rome ranch and I've had this epiphany and this incredible emotional experience that's imprinted on your brain, as you've noted. But then now what the heck do I do about it? I think you even lamented on that challenge. And that's where Force of Nature is and why we started the company. Um, trying to make sure that consumers are aware of these issues and that they understand. It's not my job to tell a consumer what to think and feel, but at least to give them for the first time in history access to the, the truth behind the products that they're complicit in supporting and the system that they are um, absolutely play a, a critical role in. And then separately, once they do something with that, to make it a little easier on them uh, to support and vote for a system that aligns more closely with their values. And I think what we're finding time and again is that consumers that want a system that has a little a fewer compromise in the form of health and wellness, in the form of welfare of animals, in the form of eco ecosystem and ecological impact and social issues in, in rural areas. And then, of course, with the power of the consumer, we can obviously work on the other front line with land stewards and, and ranchers and farmers all, all, all around the country and even across the globe eventually uh, to justify improving their practices. Again, you know, they are in a sharecropper type system, even in, a, even in the states, we are pushing and squeezing farmers off of the land and, and forcing them into a hopeless situation. You know, the path out of that for them also is in regenerative, but the system makes that leap unnecessarily large and difficult. And so if we can come to the table and pay a premium and connect them to this regenerative supply network, connect them to those consumers who value what they're doing and are willing to pay for it, then we can begin to create a flywheel where there's more consumers with more access, sending more signals into these, these markets and economies, putting regenerative more on the radar for other you know, good actors who deserve to be beneficiaries of this, as well as to the large incumbents who have been taking advantage and uh, profiting off of the destruction of, of so many key constituencies and stakeholders. Uh, and then again, similarly continue to scale and grow um, the, the, the network of food producers and give them more sovereignty, all while addressing all of the challenges that, that, that you've noted and, and, and been addressing. So, or have been acknowledging. So, you know, at its, at its simplest form, that's really where force of nature comes into the equation. We're just trying to be a factor in, in stimulating all of those outcomes. So, so talk about some of the places you've visited and some of the things you've seen and where, where you're most excited about. Uh, around the world, in America, other countries, like what? What are you seeing out there? Yeah, you know, I think the there's because really, why so venison from like I don't know, was New Zealand or something? Yeah, or, I mean, so like they have they have you can't like raise venison for commercial purposes here, but you can do it in New Zealand. Like, what are you well, what are you seeing out there? Yeah, and you even mentioned it too, and I'll get into about you know feeding a growing population. But when you when you look at how the U.S. produces food, it's 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 sort of it's pretty unique. You, you know, we've we've done the most to go the furthest and deepest down the rabbit hole of absolutely trying to industrialize in pursuit of yield and profit at the expense of everything else. That's what Taylor and we in, in, in Force of Nature would say, commodification. That's what we've uh, pegged our uh, our entire system around. And that's, you know, we, we think of that as the, uh, the, the pursuit of cheapness at the expense of all else. And you don't see that necessarily in Europe. You always, you know, we, I think whenever you visit, we talked about going to Europe and buying, buying bread. Well, it's because they're using grains that haven't been morphed into a, a, a shell of their formal, uh, former and, and biological intention and reality. The same thing can be said with breeds of poultry. And you go around the world and you see 
subsistence farming at scale and people feeding themselves and, and their communities. And you see most of the food or much of the food available for sale in the United States is illegal in the European Union. And even some of the things that we sell are Ill illegal in Mexico, you know? Wow. So, wow. you know, I think as you travel around, you start to see that the myths, the lies that we are fed by this, this complex, this big food, big ag, big pharma, big chemical. I mean, these, they're all in bed, even big, even big energy it takes a lot of petroleum to run tractors across a billion acres five times a year. Um, so, you know, there's, there's, there's so much incentive going into convincing consumers, convincing our citizens that this is the way it must be to feed a growing population around the world as if it's our responsibility to feed everybody else on the planet. Um, and so I think, you know, again, traveling the world, visiting ranches, I think acknowledging that reality gives me again, more hope for the potential that these changes in this regenerative system is not only scalable, which it is, um, but it, but it's proven. Uh, and it's and it's obtainable, uh, which which is exciting. And then I think the other, you know, and then I think just it gives me a sense of place. It gives me a sense of on the on that trajectory and curve of progress where we sit. And, you know, again, as I was stating, that appreciation of what organic meant to giving giving us a step forward from the conventional system, the most conventional system. But even, you know, I shared with you our, our, our experience of visiting a regenerative bison ranch um, and, and, and acknowledging that it shares a fence line. Um, and you know, like a 45 minute drive down a highway on one, on your right side is a regenerative bison ranch. And on your left side is the world's largest organic farm. And that, that organic farm looks like the surface of the moon. It is tilled earth. It has emitted carbon for that tillage. It has no life on it. The regenerative farm on the other side has all of those principles of soil health. We just discussed in place it's water cycle, it's energy cycle, it's nutrient cycle are all thriving. It has species for an it has habitat for endangered species. There was deer and antelope and bison and mammals and amphibians and birds all flourishing there. And so I think, um, again, not to disparage organic, but look at how popular organic has gotten under the pretense that it is better and that consumers will pay a premium for it. That is so encouraging and so important to know that the next step in that journey, the next milestone and improving our system is is going from organic, which is now purchased in something like eighty percent of households, um, at least one time a year, of, of late, and, and and moving the bar up to regenerative. I think most people probably listening are like, okay, yeah, I, I get it. Uh, this makes sense. You know, we want to restore ecosystems. We want to farm and ranch in ecological ways that restore biodiversity, soil health, water tables. You know, don't kill tons of animals through all the chemicals we use and humans and on and on and on. Right? Everybody's bought in. And, and, and so, um, if, if people want to really do that, um, and, and switch over even from organic to regenerative, you know, can we get there? Like, what are the obstacles in the way and, and can this really be a global solution or is it just still going to be always a niche market? Well, again, it goes back to that illusion of choice. I think we can get there. I think our hand is forced. I think we have to, we have to make change. Um, I think if you just look at the is it, you know the is it possible you gave the example of rome ranch the stocking density on that ranch is i think two or three i think it might be three or four times the stocking density of their the, the rest of that county so if you look at the land use as so that, stands, that means you can you can put more animals on a smaller piece of land restore the land and produce more food 
or put differently, you can feed more people on the same amount of land. But yes, yeah, okay, okay, yeah, and, thank you, that, and, <laughs> and offer them more nutritional density in that food. You know, regenerative farms like like Taylor's income stack, so they have numerous um, revenue streams. So it's not just that you can put more bison or or cows on it; it's that when you add in beef and poultry and other things, and so it becomes um, somewhat exponential, certainly um, factorial. Um, I think when you look at um, the uh, other hurdles, though, um, the, the, the farm bill, you know, your passion and, and, and mine, you know, there's this massive incentive to perpetuate the status quo. You just look at um, Tyson, Smithfield, because of that farm bill, there, there's there, like from when, it, when it changed mo most significantly back in 1996, Something it saved Tyson something like three hundred million dollars per year over the course of a decade because they were able to feed their poultry a feed that they were able to purchase at a cost that was less than the cost of production. And when you expand that across the top producers of chicken and the top wow. producers of pork wow. over the course of that decade, it saved those companies twenty billion dollars. So there is so much going into the perpetuation of that one hundred billion dollar per year farm bill. Um, that makes it difficult to transition. But again, in, in spite of that, um, there is still optimism and there is still progress being made. So I think seeing changes in that, fo that, that, that food and farm bill are a hurdle um, that, I, that I'm confident we can overcome. And, and, and again, I, I would go back to the consumer and I would say, um, you know, I, I think we have to just, we, we have to recognize that we're being lied to aggressively and actively. We're being manipulated with intent. We are being told things like, vegetarian fed pork and poultry are a claim that we should put on the front of a package and it's an attribute that we should celebrate and really it is a red flag it says that this 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 animal came from an artificial and entirely synthetic and curated system where we controlled every element and could guarantee based on its feed supply that it did not receive um a a any anything other than the grains that we gave it and you know that is not the system that we all we all imagine when we think about where our food is and, and, and should be coming from and so again i think just like that's just a small example of, of of how we need to take a step back and begin to think more independently think more critically be more aware um and 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 again understand the, this food system and the implications of the food system. I know it's hard and, and we're doing our very best to connect you to that and, and that reality and make it easier. And Mark, like you had a very real, tangible on-farm experience. We're trying to give microcosms of that experience to as many people as we can so they can begin to develop that level of appreciation. Um, yeah. So so that's beautiful, Robbie. And, and, and Taylor, I'd love sort of you to share you know, what your hope is now. What, what, what are you hopeful for? What are you, what is your vision of the future that, that you see coming to fruition. Yeah. You know, what, what gives me hope and what reminds me that this is, we're capable of changing, radically changing this food system is, is again, just looking back. I mean, so much of my inspiration and so much of the deepest, most profound learnings that I've ever observed come from, come from nature. And the fact is that, you know, what we've been able to accomplish out here in six years that's nothing compared to some of the people that have been doing regenerative agriculture for 20, 25 years. So we're talking about yeah. some of our mentors like Will Harris over at White Oak Pastures or Joel Salatin at Polyface Farms. Um, I mean, those those two, they, you know, we talk about in nature, it takes 500 years to build one inch of topsoil. And when you hear a stat like that and you 
you put it right next to, well, we can lose three or four inches of topsoil in one single rain event if our land is not covered. So it doesn't take a mathematician to figure out how sustainable that system is. But the beautiful part that always encourages me is that Joel Salatin, Will Harris, these guys have built five to 10 inches of topsoil, topsoil in less than 25 years. So this is literally it's defined. Amazing. Not 500 years, but like. No. I mean, this <laughs> yeah. is like a blip on the radar. This is defying the human capacity for what we thought was the potential ability for land to heal itself. And that's just one small example. And so it's, again, this capacity for heal in a natural ecosystem that's functioning at a high level is so great. It is right in front of us. It is right there. And it just takes so little as a, as a civilization and as a culture to return to that. That's really helpful. I think that's a beautiful message. And I think, you know, what you're doing uh, every day at Rome Ranch, Taylor and Robbie, what you're doing there and with Force of Nature Meets is just, it's incredible. And I encourage everybody to check out forceofnature.com and you can find such educational content on there all about land stewardship, but you also find amazing food. You can get regenerally red bi raised bison, elk, venison, and and much more. And I think, uh, you know, I, I was able to actually try many of the products and it's just so yummy, so delicious. Um, and it tastes so different than your store-bought feedlot meat and i think what both you're doing is really uh is really extraordinary and i want you to continue doing what you're doing i'm going to help you any way i can grow and i think uh people start to try this to use it to learn about it it's going to start to shift the whole market i mean you know think about you know 50 years ago nobody knew what organic was nobody ever heard of you know you know healthy eating but now it's kind of more mainstream and i think this is going to become more and more mainstream and i'm working in washington to try to push the envelope on the farm bill and move that forward and going to watch in a couple of weeks. So stay tuned for all that. And uh, thank you both for what you do, for what you do in the world. Uh, keep doing it. And I uh, look forward to coming back to Rome Ranch soon. Come back anytime. Thank you, Mark. Thank, thank you. A lot, Mark. We appreciate it. Thanks for the work you're doing with, with food fix and on the farm bill and everything else. I mean, this is what yeah, makes me of course. Is conversations yeah. like these happening more and more. It's happening. I can tell you it's happening. There's stuff shifting in Washington. And I think it's because of the work that you people, people like you are doing and others. So uh, for those of you who love this podcast, please share with your friends and family. Everybody needs to hear this message. Um, how, how have you learned about how to shift your relationship to food and agriculture? And how have you done that? We'd love to hear from you. Uh, subscribe wherever you get your podcast. And we'll see you next week on The Doctor's Pharmacy. Hey, everybody, it's Dr. Hyman. Thanks for tuning into The Doctor's Pharmacy. I hope you're loving this podcast. It's one of my favorite things to do and introducing you to all the experts that I know and I love and that I've learned so much from. And I want to tell you about something else I'm doing, which is called Mark's Picks. It's my weekly newsletter. And in it, I share my favorite stuff from foods to supplements to gadgets to tools to enhance your health. It's all the cool stuff that I use and that my team uses to optimize and enhance our health. And I'd love you to sign up for the weekly newsletter. I'll only send it to you once a week on Fridays. Nothing else, I promise. And all you have to do is go to drhyman.com forward slash picks to sign up. That's drhyman.com forward slash picks, P-I-C-K-S, and sign up for the newsletter. And I'll share with you my favorite stuff that I use to enhance my health and get healthier and better and live younger, longer. Hi, everyone. I hope you enjoyed this week's episode. 
Just a reminder that this podcast is for educational purposes only. This podcast is not a substitute for professional care by a doctor or other qualified medical professional. This podcast is provided on the understanding that it does not constitute medical or other professional advice or services. If you're looking for help in your journey, seek out a qualified medical practitioner. If you're looking for a functional medicine practitioner, you can visit ifm.org and search their Find a Practitioner database. It's important that you have someone in your corner who's trained, who's a licensed healthcare practitioner, and can help you make changes, especially when it comes to your health.